We are have been we have been going through the uh, the book the the book. Sometimes he puts it up the the book daring to think again uh, coming out at the end of the month hopefully, and um, we've been kind of going through some selected chapters just to kind of get a feel for the book, but also because these chapters cover really key basic acts of daily living kind of issues that we need to deal with. And um, so we're going to do that again this morning. Last week we talked about convictions of the heart, and I told the story that I love to tell that most of you have heard many times. Um, but when I went, uh, it was, this is getting back for those of you who are hearing it for the first time, like Angelo. <laughs> if you're hearing it for the first time, about 30 years ago when I was just starting this journey, I spent a lot of time at the Sarah Retreat House in Malibu, and there was a, a Franciscan priest there, uh, Emery Tang, that uh, I befriended and just became an amazing mentor for me. But uh, one of the first times that I was up there, he said something that I figured I felt was totally outrageous in uh, one of the group sessions. And so I went to his office afterwards, Bible in hand, ready to debate, loaded for bear. And as soon as I got about a sentence out, his big hand just went up in the universal stop sign. And he just said, wait, all I can tell you is what I've become convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. Conversation over. And at the time, I thought it was a huge evasion, cop out. But now I realize it's the only thing that one of us can say to another when it comes to things of faith. The things that we can prove to ourselves, but we can't prove to anybody else. Now, why did I think that I had the right, why did I think I had the duty to go and call him on the carpet and to confront him and to debate him? It was my view of Scripture, The view of scripture that I had been taught, I was newly in the evangelical church at the time that I was taught there, was that there is one way, one correct way to interpret scripture. And just ask the church, they will tell you what that one way is. You know, and all we have to do is understand the scripture correctly and then believe it fully. And we will be accepted by God. We will be saved. But it's come down to that. It was my view of Scripture that allowed me to go in there and, say, and thinking that all I had to do for this Franciscan priest who had been a priest for 50 years was just help him to see where he went wrong, and then we could agree, you see. I remember going into divinity school and in a hermeneutics class, that's the interpretation of Scripture, the professor, first thing he says to the class is, if we could just all interpret Scripture aright, then we could force doctrinal unity on the church. And, of course, that just raised every hair on the back of my neck because if it hadn't happened in 2,000 years, how in the world was it going to happen now? But these are the ideas that we have about Scripture. We become people tied to a book in a very particular way. And that way is what I just articulated, that there is one knowable way that we can interpret Scripture, and we just have to get all of that together to be accepted and saved by God. And you know what? This idea that we have, and it's really pretty recent, last 500 years or so may not sound recent to you, but since the Protestant Reformation is where this branch took off into such a hyper-intellectual sort of understanding. The rallying cry of the Reformation was sola fides, faith alone is what saves, and sola scriptura, Scripture alone is what God uses to reveal. And only Scripture. Nothing else is valid. And coming out of the Enlightenment and coming out of that hyper-scientific you know, era, 
then it's like, okay, if we just read literally what is on the page and we understand that correctly because this is the only place we're going to get God's revelation, then we are in. Then we are okay. And it's ironic that we should come full circle to this because in the early days of the followers of Jesus and Christianity, there was a group of followers called the Gnostics. And if you haven't heard of them, they were, they were Greek followers of Jesus. And in the third and fourth centuries, they were declared heretics by the church. And for partly this very same reason. Because Gnostics, the, the name comes from Gnosis, which in Greek means knowledge. They believed that there was special, esoteric, and hidden knowledge that only the initiated into their groups would know. And that knowledge was what would save them. And the church said, no, Jesus' message is open to all. Jesus' message can be understood at ground level, at face value, and lived in a very specific way. And yet here we are now. We become people of the book, you see. And that's okay with me. I love this book. I've been studying this book for 30 years. It has become this huge part of my life. But as I have spent this 30 years with this book, I have come to understand it, know it, and love it in a very different way than I knew it either as a Catholic growing up or as an evangelical during my midlife crisis. There is a different way that we can understand Scripture if we are willing to find out what our real relationship to this book is and find out what this book really is itself. First of all, did you know that the Bible is not a book? (laughs) Dead silence. The Bible is an anthology. It's a collection of books. There's either 66 books if you're a Protestant, 73 books if you're a Catholic, or 79 books if you're Eastern Orthodox. There's different amounts of books. Everyone in the three major branches of, of Christianity have the same number of books, 27 in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it varies based on what books are accepted and what books are not. So we have an anthology, a compilation of books in the one book that we call the Bible. And then some of those books are actually compilations themselves. For instance, the book of Isaiah, going back and forth between prose and poetry, scholars can look and they can see the seams where probably different authors contributed different sections to the book that is now called Isaiah. And of course, that seems terrible to us. I mean, that's plagiaristic, isn't it? Or or something. But ancient writers, especially ancient sacred writers, didn't play by the same rules that we play by. They didn't worry about copyright infringement or plagiarism. If they wrote in the name of their mentor, even if that mentor were centuries before them, that wasn't plagiarism or copyright law infringement. That was honor. That was showing honor to their teacher, to their mentor. And so there's so many different things that we need to take a look at. There were probably, traditionally, there were 35 authors that wrote the Bible, but that still leaves some books unaccounted for that were anonymous. So even traditional scholars say there was at least 40 authors writing in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, on three different continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, and over a span of at least 1,500 years and maybe as much as 2,000 years. And they're writing in an ancient language, Semitic languages, typically Hebrew and Aramaic. Even the Greek had Aramaic thought forms that had to be translated into Greek at some point. And if we don't take into consideration the language, the idioms, the idiomatic expressions, the historical context and reality, 
their worldview, their, just their basic understanding of life. We're going to get a very different picture from that text, from those passages, than what the original intent was of the author. Now, we really can't know the original intent of an author. How are you going to climb into an author's mind, especially from a distance of two, three, four thousand years? What we can know, though, as much as we possibly can study, is what a contemporary listener would have understood as they were reading or hearing these words for the first time. That we can start to get a handle on, and that will take us at least close enough to what the author was okay with his listeners' understanding. Make sense? This is the huge, huge, immense task that both translators and Bible commentators have. And there's there's even more. I feel like one of those Ronco commercials. But wait, there's more. There are at least eight different literary genres in those 66 books of the Bible. There's history books, there's poetry, there's prophecy, there's apocalyptic, there's gospels, there's, there's narratives and letters, epistles. All these different types, literary types, all demand a different type of interpretation. I mean, we know that you're not going to interpret poetry the same way that you're going to interpret a history book or that you're going to interpret a personal letter going from an individual to either a group or another individual. And so all these things need to be taken into consideration. And this is an immense task, if you can imagine. And there, as you can also imagine, over 2,000 years of doing this, there's been huge disagreement among scholars, commentators, church leaders, all of us. Huge disagreement. Who's right? Who's wrong? Right? What's God really trying to say here? Why would it be so hard for us to understand what God is trying to say if God's communication to us is so important to us as human beings? See, I'm thinking maybe it's only hard to know the Bible, to understand the Bible, because of the way we look at the Bible itself and not because of the Bible itself. It's our views of the Bible that are really making everything so difficult for us to understand. All this that I've been talking about, and I could really go on here and go off because I'm the egghead you know, from way back, but I don't want to go there. I don't want to get lost in the weeds. In fact, that's what this morning is all about, not getting lost in the weeds. And so instead of, of going along that take, because everything that I've talked about just now is what we can know of the Bible from a literary perspective. All right? But our relationship with the Bible isn't going to come from that perspective. Our relationship with the Bible is going to come from a faith perspective. And everything changes when we look at the Bible through the eyes of faith instead of just as the, uh, from the eyes of a literary critic, from a commentator, from a translator. How do we know what's going to change in the Bible as we view it from a faith perspective? There's a favorite um, analogy that I like to use when I've been talking about the Bible, and of course it has to do with music. And I thought the best way for me to try to get this analogy across to you is just read a couple of paragraphs from the book. And the, the title of this chapter is called Playing the Scriptures. 
And this music analogy will kind of clue you in to why that title is there. Music is much more than mere notes and bar lines scratched on paper. But it's also less. The music we hear and experience, love and remember, is much greater than the sum of the intricate parts of its creation in strings or keys or hammers and wind or of its notation in pen and ink. We all know that the instruments that create the sounds and the manuscript paper that records the ideas lay mute without the inspired soul of the musician who brings them to life. But at the same time, when you get right down to it, music is really just a vibration in the air. It pushes air molecules against your eardrums for a moment and then is gone. That simple vibration is much less than the years of training and technology it took to create the sound in the first place, but then again, infinitely more in the heart of the listener. Do you remember the first time you heard music? How it made you feel? Made you cry or made you dance? Made you want to be able to make those sounds yourself? But if you did begin to study... The simple experience of vibrations against your eardrums suddenly became a vast and complicated world of training muscle and mind to work together, of endless practice and the interplay between science and art. In that world, you couldn't look at music in the same simple and naive way you did before. You may not even have enjoyed it as much as you did before, now that it lay dissected and bloodless under your microscope. But if you persisted, until your muscles began remembering what your mind could now forget, you could actually begin to play without thinking about it. Hear a sound in your head and put it straight out into the air. You could return to that simple and naive experience of the music you were now also creating. Creator, player, and listener becoming one, knowing the music. So, Determined to know God in this way, in the Aramaic sense of that word, yada, a non-rational knowing built of long experience and familiarity, not just head knowledge, but intimate experience. How do we take God beyond mere concepts and theology the way a master musician takes music beyond mere notes and bar lines in the pure experience of beautiful vibrations in the air? How are we going to do this? How are we going to bring God out of abstract thought, out of just a theological concept, and really taste and see that the Lord is good? That wonderful line from the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good, intimately taking into ourselves all that God is, not from a distance, but right up close, inside ourselves. How do we yada God? How do we know Him in this very intimate and experiential way. Well, the first step to admit is that the manuscript paper is not the music itself. The sheet music that we have up here, that's not the music. That's a recording of a performance or the recording of an idea. But it's not the music itself. And if that analogy holds, then we have to admit that the pen and ink and paper of our scriptures is not God himself. It also is the recording of a performance, an experience of an inspired person living their relationship with God, or even an inspired nation, the people of Israel, living their relationship with God. 
recorded onto paper. And so what are we going to do with that then? How do these inspired authors take us to the next step? See, there's so many different ideas about how Scripture is inspired and how it is the Word of God. Very conservative people believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that the words printed on the page literally are God's words, and we can take each one of them literally to the bank. If you go to the opposite side of the spectrum, the liberal scholars say that the Bible contains the Word of God. That means that not everything is God's Word, but there are parts of it. There's wisdom in there. There are things that speak from God's heart. But right in the middle is the one that I like. It's called the Neo-Orthodox Perspective. And they believe that the Bible becomes the Word of God. Just like a composer who hears a sound in his or her head and either performs it and then writes it down or writes it like Mozart right down onto the paper with no middleman. Then that paper lays there mute. It's just ink on paper until you put it into the hands of a gifted musician who then interacts with it and plays it note for note but adds something of their own years of training and their own understanding of music and sensibility. And their inspired performance mixes with the inspired recording of the composer and then moves into the ears and the heart of an inspired listener. And all three of those become one. What's happening in our scriptures is exactly the same thing from this position. There is God and his relationship with an individual who then expresses what happened in that relationship, what happened in that quote-unquote performance. And it lays there mute, ink and paper, until it's picked up by a reader who moves into that same space because the scripture has the ability to do that. That's why it's living and active. It brings us into that, that evocation of that same space. And in that place, God, inspired author, and inspired reader become one. And that ink and paper become the word of God. This is this idea here. And it's a beautiful idea. And I think it's the one that we need to look at. Because with so much disagreement about what the Bible means, how do we approach it? Through eyes of faith, rather than just eyes of a literary critic. The authors of Scripture had no Scripture, if you think about it, to give them God's revelation. So how do we go about this? If we are trying to interact with the text itself, does that mean that the Bible can mean whatever we want it to mean? (laughs) See, that's the danger that we're always faced with. If we're just dealing with our own personal experience, can the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean? And of course the answer is no. But as we've discussed in here so many times, the journey is never an either-or journey. It's always both and. And when we take the both and, we go down a middle and balanced way. And that's where we're trying to understand. The authors of Scripture didn't have Scripture to guide them. What did they have? We, since the Reformation, believe that all of God's revelation is only included in the ink that's on the paper. But the authors of Scripture had no ink on paper. They tell us where they got their revelations from God. They got them from dreams. They got them from visions. They got them from their prayers. They got them from interactions with each other. They got them from witnessing the miracles that they saw in their personal lives and the lives of their nation. 
All of those things were ways that they understood who their God was, understood what the relationship with their God was, and then expressed those and left those for us. How many of you have felt that you've had a touch from God, have gotten a message from God, feel like you've gotten some kind of revelation directly from God? You know, I see hands going up. I think most of us have in one way or another. Not that you've heard an audible voice or got something actually specific, but you knew that you knew that you knew in a way that you could never prove to anybody else that you were touched, that something transpired. Something was transferred, something connected between you and God. Are we supposed to discount all that and say, no, all of that stopped with the last author of the New Testament, that God no longer speaks to us the way that he did then? See, one of the hallmarks of God's nature is that it's consistent. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It never changes. Our relationship with God never changes. Moses didn't have an unfair advantage over us because he got to see the burning bush. There are burning bushes in front of us all day long. Are we the ones who have developed the shepherd consciousness that Moses developed over 40 years of isolation in the desert with his sheep? So that when he saw that anomaly, that he'd actually turned aside to go see it, spent some time to consider it. Have we quieted ourselves down enough so that we can see the touches that we're being given at the same time? God is working in all of these ways to reveal himself. And if there's only one God, if there really is just one God who is consistent in nature, then all of us should be getting the same message, don't you think? I mean, wouldn't that be logical? And yet, if we're looking at the words on the paper, especially from a literary point of view, from a scholarly point of view, we're getting nothing that's consistent. Just about every single premise of Christianity is controversial. Every single premise is being debated somewhere. Doctrinal unity? Are you kidding me? When is that ever going to happen? And yet, the mystics and the contemplatives among us, think about it, the ones that we've studied in here, they have a consistent message of God every single time. And what is that message? It's about the pure oneness, the pure love of God, that all will be well and all manner of things will be well. Every single mystic, every single contemplative, everyone who quiets down the sound of their own thoughts and just comes heart to heart in pure presence with God's Spirit knows that they know that they know who God is. And that God looks exactly like Jesus. That God looks exactly like the Father that Jesus was painting for us. That's the central message here. The oneness and the allness of God's person, His love, and His presence. Once we've experienced that, and then we go back to the pages of any book in the Bible... We see that. We see that in spades. It jumps off the page and hits us. And then we can start to assume, I know that's a terrible word, we can start to assume that anything that we read that seems to contradict that nature is something that we merely don't understand yet. We don't know how to interpret that yet. We don't have to try to harmonize that as it contradicts or seems to contradict God's loving nature, his oneness, and his unity. 
We need to say, how did we miss the boat? How did we not understand that? You know, Jesus does the same thing here. If you look at Jesus, he's quoting constantly from the Old Testament. Did you know that? Most of the, or at least, I think, 40 to 50% of the New Testament is quotations of the Old Testament. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he's only quoting from just a handful of books, just a few, and only quoting those passages that conform to the understanding of God's love and oneness and presence that he is teaching, that he has experienced himself. In other words, he picked and chose. And he did not choose those that seemed to contradict because that's okay. According to Jesus, we can do that. We can see through the eyes of our experience with God who God is in the Bible. And those things that seem to contradict, we can let them be, at least for now. Now, I will tell you this. After 30 years of looking at the Bible from a Hebrew and an Aramaic point of view, once I do that, once anyone does that, guess what happens? Everything starts to resolve right back to this idea of the allness, the oneness, and the presence of God, the love of God. I've never seen it go the other way. Really difficult passages that seem so gnarly and so difficult because they contradicted they just melt back into the oneness of God when we put them back into the language, put them back into the idiomatic expressions and into the history and into the context. I don't expect to see it go the other way. But even before we do all that work, we can say with confidence who God is, who Jesus told us God is, and who he is in our hearts when we meet him that way, uncritically, not loaded for bear and ready for debate, but just ready to accept what is right in front of us. This is a whole different way to try to understand. And I want to give you all an, an example. Take a look at Romans 8, starting at verse 28, right to the end of the chapter. This is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, one of the most hopeful passages of Scripture, and yet it is also one of the theologically most dense and difficult passages of Scripture, one that has bedeviled the church for 2,000 years and caused splits and different denominations within the the Protestant camp. Based on on just lines from this, this passage here, But if we approach it in the way that I'm talking about, something changes and things resolve. What is Paul saying here? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that sounds pretty good right off the bat, doesn't it? All things, not some things, all things God causes to work together for good Great, so far, well, now there's a qualification. For those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. You know, there's a lot of debate about what it means to be called according to God's purpose. And even the idea of calling sounds like God's doing the calling. So does that mean that some people get called and some people don't? I mean, what's that all about? And what does it mean to be called according to his purpose? But if you take the whole thing together, those who love God and are called according to his purpose, the scriptures also tell us that God is love. God is the personification of love. God is love, is forgiveness, is redemption, is healing and salvation. These things that we are looking for in the abstract are going to be found in a person. 
And so it's not too far of a stretch to say that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love love. Those who love oneness. Those who love unity. Those who love presence. And therefore, because they love it so much, make their decisions and all of their choices based on that love, on that oneness, on that presence. I can't think of a better way to interpret what it means to be called according to his purpose. God is love and oneness and unity. His purpose has to be love and oneness and unity. If you're in love with that, if you take as much pleasure in being connected as God does, and all your choices are based on that, then guess what? All things are working together for good in your life. All things. Then he gets really out in left field. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Oh my God, there is the P word. We got Calvinism, we got this, we got Arminianism, we got people fighting over predestination and free will. What the heck are we going to do with that? There have been whole volumes written on this one sentence. What the heck is Paul talking about? And then he makes it worse, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. There's one translation that said, among a big family, which I really liked. So, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the first born among a big family. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I'm telling you, that's 2,000 years of debate, trying to unravel that. What in the heck is going on? You know? But if there is predestination, the way we read that word in English, then that means some never have a chance. There are those who are predestined, and God does all these things, and there are those who are not. But guess what? If God is who Jesus says he is, if God is who we have experienced in our hearts, then it can't mean that. Because there can't be people outside of God's love, outside of God's allness. It can't be. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Remember that? But what does that really mean if we parse that back? Because God is choosing everyone. Many are called. All are called. But few choose to be chosen. See, the choosing is on our part. That's the unknown side of the equation. God has already chosen, is what Jesus is telling us. Everything the Father has is already yours, Jesus tells us. Everything has been poured out. Everything exists. Everything is here now. There's nothing left for God to choose in our favor. Are we going to choose to be chosen? That's the question. For those whom he foreknew, he foreknew everyone. If we choose to be chosen, then we are called, then we are justified, and then we are glorified. All of these things work together. If you take those two paragraphs together, they work in context together. All things are working together for good for those who love, love, and unity and oneness and make their decisions based on that purpose. Paul then says, well, what then shall we say to these things? How are we going to interpret this? How does this make any sense? If God is for us, who is against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's elect, those who choose to be chosen, not an exclusive group, meaning that others are not chosen, right? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he was raised, who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. See, with God, no opposition matters. Even Jesus' death on the cross, that horrendous act, also works for good for us. No one can charge us, no one can condemn us, Everything is on our side. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Yeah, we're still going to suffer. Things are still going to happen in this life. And the most human thing for us to do when that happens, when we're hurting, is to imagine that God has removed his protective hand from us, to imagine that God is no longer on our side. But Paul is saying, that's not so. Even though these things are happening, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he brings it all home. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. In all these things... For those who love, love, and unity and make their choices based on that, all these things, the things that we suffer, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, hey, here's Paul telling us what he's convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. This is what I'm convinced of, Paul is saying. I can't prove it to you, but I know that I know that I know that these things are true. And listen how he expresses it. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if that doesn't just raise the hairs on your arms and neck, how do you say something like that with that kind of authority? He didn't read it out of a book, I'll tell you that. He experienced this. He knows this to his depth and to his core. And so what do we do with this? I have heard lengthy (laughs) debates and commentaries about what powers and principalities are trying to define what Paul means by these spiritual realms and getting into the weeds of all of this. Can we just back up? Can we just kind of let our eyes go a little out of focus for a minute as we look at this? Can we just look at what Paul is saying in this whole passage? Because it's all one passage. It's all in the same context. It all connects instead of focusing on any one little thing and trying to figure it out. How many times do we mourn over a person who is no longer present to us because they died, because they fell out of relationship with us, because they're mad at us? And we mourn over that face that's no longer present, missing all of the faces that still are. We are so obsessed with that loss. We are so obsessed with that difficulty that we can no longer 
enjoy what is right in front of us. We do this with the scriptures too. We obsess over the things that we don't understand. We obsess over the things that seem to contradict. We obsess over the things that everybody's fighting out and it gets us all up and going and full of adrenaline and we love that feeling. But we're missing what is right in front of us and will never leave or forsake us. This presence, this allness, this love, this unity of God that comes off of every page, screams off every page, we will miss that in the division and the disunity of us trying to service our noodles. All those thoughts in our heads that continue to spin. Can we just get out of the weeds for a while? Out of the weeds of predestination and principalities and powers and focus on what we do understand on what is so absolutely clear every time. One of my favorite movies is When Harry Met Sally. Have you seen that? Near the end of the movie, I think it's one of the last scenes, it takes place on New Year's Eve, and Harry and Sally have finally come together again after all of the stuff that happens in the second last half of the movie. And Auld Lang Syne starts to play you know, it starts playing, and they kiss, and they're, they're reconnected, and she's crying, and he, he finally stops in perfect Billy Crystal way. What's this song mean? All my life I'm wondering what this song means. Old Lang Syne. But should old acquaintance be forgot? Does that mean we're supposed to forget old acquaintances? Or does it mean we're supposed to remember them or remember that we forgot, but that's impossible because we already forgot? <laughs> and he totally steps out of the moment. He totally steps out. And then Sally just responds. She says, well, maybe it just means we're supposed to remember them or remember that we forgot. Anyway, it's all about old friends. It's just about old friends. We don't need to have every single line of the old Scottish parsed for us. We don't need to understand every line. We know that it's about old friends. We know that it's about connecting the past to the present. And every person who has ever been in our life is now here with us, now in our hearts, and present in a way that just binds us all together. Can we approach our scriptures the same way? What is Paul saying in Romans 8? He's saying what his conviction is, but he's saying, you know, it's just all about God's love. It's about everything working toward it, and nothing ever separating from it. Get that. Get that. Even if three-quarters of the rest you don't understand, get that, and you got it all. That's playing the Scriptures. That's moving into the Bible from a perspective of faith and getting everything that we need about it. You want to talk about being led by the Spirit as you read? That's it. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like, and that's what it'll yield to us. The conviction, we will know that we know what we are convinced of, and we will have the grace to be able to let everyone else go become convinced of what they're convinced of, no longer trying to persuade them of anything else except the necessity to take the journey. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you for 
every one of those inspired authors who lived their lives in such a way that they had something to write about, something that has survived two, three, four thousand years of human history that still speaks to us today just as clearly as it did the first day. That's the miracle, Lord. Help us to enter into the miracle. Help us to become inspired readers of inspired writing, to enter into the experience of who you are so that we are convinced, so that we know that we know and that we can express ourselves with that same authority. Bounded by Scripture, of course, but free to experience you, Lord. That's what we want. You've given us permission. Give us the courage to take the permission and run with it. Thank you for your love, Father. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.